Welcome to this edition of Rail Group On Air, our podcast series sponsored by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is a part of a continuing series that has been facilitated by the Commuter Rail Coalition. My uh, guests today are Stephen Abrams, who is Executive Director of uh, the South Florida Regional Transportation Authority, or TriRail. Stephen is also Secretary Treasurer of the Commuter Rail Coalition. And uh, joining us is uh, Joe Yesbeck, who is National Director of Rail and Transit for T.Y. Lynn. And we'll be talking in a little bit about a special project that T.Y. Lynn is collaborating on with, uh, with TriRail. So, Stephen, welcome. Things are starting to open up, I guess. Uh, ha- uh, we're hopefully into a recovery. Uh, we're not quite post-COVID yet, but we're hopefully we're getting there. How are things going so far? They're going very well. As you mentioned, it's really a gradual process uh, as our country, as the world, goes into a post-COVID era, which most accounts truly will not occur until there's a vaccine. But in any case, you know, you are seeing uh, Florida and the other states open up. You're seeing our ridership tick up accordingly. And we were planning for that as people gradually go back to work in a school and other activities. Uh, I just wanted to uh, just give a shout out to uh, Kelly Ann Gallagher, who is uh, principal at the uh, Commuter Rail Coalition, the founder. And uh, Kelly Ann, uh, thank you for, for setting this up. Kel- Kelly is listening in. Uh, I'm here. Yeah, thank you. Hello there. Thank okay. You. Th- thank you again, Kelly. So, Stephen, uh, I assume that uh, uh, TriRail has received some CARES Act funds. Uh, and how are those being applied? Yes, uh, I, I think uh, public transit in general uh, was uh, quite a beneficiary of the CARES Act, uh, TriRail in particular, and our uh, other transit agencies down here in South Florida. So, first, you know, we're using it to pay the uh, COVID-19 related expenses. Uh, we, as with the other uh, transits, had to redouble our efforts to sanitize and disinfect our trains, uh, also to purchase uh, the uh, PE equipment for our uh, train crews, riders, uh, uh, folks here at the operations center, and that's you know the first order of business, and then also we're using it uh, to fill gaps in our budget that occurred because of the coronavirus. Uh, we, as with a lot of transit uh, agencies, suspended our fares. Also, there were some uh, funding sources that we were hoping to rely on in 2020 that uh, are not going to materialize for us. So we've used that funding as well to fill in those budget gaps. Do you have any uh, idea when you might see service return to normal levels, whatever normal is going to be? We we debate that all the time. Of course, our ridership, uh, as with other commuter rails, uh, dropped uh, quite a bit, upwards of 80% decline in ridership. Uh, That now is ticked back up uh, lower, now 7% off. Um, so we uh, reduced our service from 50 trains a day on weekdays to 18, but now we've ticked it back up again to 22 trains, added four trains during rush hour north and south on our corridor. We also added uh, cars to 
our train set. So uh, uh, originally we had three cars on a train. Now we're up to five cars on a train, of course, to promote social distancing so people can spread out. If we wanted to, so really the maximum that we can get to with five car sets would be uh, uh, 30 trains on a weekday. We're probably shooting for that goal of 30 trains a day as our ridership uh, increases and then take it from there. Of course, as I mentioned, you know, it's an ultimate point. Uh, hopefully, we're, all of us are beyond this and we can just resume the full service. And obviously, your, your, your road power is, is capable of handling five car trains. They're probably bigger if you, if you had to. Correct. I mean, it is uh, uh, somewhat of a strain on our locomotives uh, to push and pull five cars instead of the usual three, but they are capable of doing that. And, you know, we've been now uh, operating the five car uh, trains for uh, a few weeks now without a, a problem. How, how does that affect uh, your, your uh, I guess, platforming, as, as you would call it, as far as getting people on and off the trains? Are your, uh, how long are your platforms in terms of accommodating trains of a specific length? Yeah, I mean, we, we've, um, we have generally our platforms are long enough to accommodate. There may be one or two stations where a train has to stop twice, you know, just pull up a little and then reopen the doors. You know, we're, we're, our platforms are able to accommodate the, the five-car sets, especially with this number of riders that we have now, which is still, as I mentioned, 70% off of our mm -hmm. uh, original pace, which, you know, those, those good old days that I like to talk about, which, of course, the good old days were only four months ago, where we ended 2019 at TriRail with the highest ridership in, the, in our 30-year history, we were looking forward this year, sometime in October, to welcoming our 100 millionth rider. So things have certainly changed for us and, of course, all of the uh, commuter rails and transits across the country. Well, you'll get to that number, no doubt. Oh, uh, we certainly will. Just take time. I wanted to uh, bring in uh, Joe Yesbeck from T.Y. Lynn. Uh, you're working on a special project with that company. Uh, Joe, tell us a bit about T.Y. Lynn. Thank you. T.Y. Lynn's a uh, global uh, engineering planning consulting firm. Our brand worldwide is, is perhaps um, more known as for our, our design of, of big bridges, um, signature bridges all around the world. But, uh, but we have a very vibrant practice in the rail and transit industry as well. And so from design to constructive management to planning for agencies all across uh, the U.S. And, and elsewhere. So you're working with uh, TriRail. Tell us about that. I'm also happy to be uh, based in Southeast Florida and have been affiliated with, with some way, shape, or form with TriRail since its very beginnings. Personally, it has a special place for me. And a little over a year ago, uh, Steve and some of his staff uh, contacted, uh, we were talking, and turned out they needed some, uh, they were looking for some help to get their maintenance of way program sort of re-energized. Um, it, was, it was languishing a bit, and um, what they really were looking for was somebody who had a significant amount of experience in, in assembling a maintenance way program. Uh, focusing the efforts to improve the conditions in the corridor and also 
help build a capital program for that supported ongoing state of good repair. And so, uh, so we're able to, um, to jump in, um, identify uh, some staff, especially a key individual who immediately uh, was able to uh, get engaged, uh, get that program underway. So that's, that's your background then in, in, in railroad uh, civil engineering? Well, you know, that's, I think for us, that's an area where we see we can, we can help beyond just planning and design. You know, there is that in many cases where agencies need some assistance is maybe in some operation planning or, or operations review or help with maintenance of way. Things, um, activities that get beyond just designing something or planning something or having with construction management. So we have a team of individuals, both that are employees as well as contract uh, folks that are on the bench, ready to jump in an agency rather than designing a new project or designing an improvement when somebody needs help with something that's more operational, like in this case. And on a heavily traveled uh, uh, rail corridor where you have tri-rail trains, you have a couple of so you have some Amtrak trains, and you also have some CSX freight trains. Uh, uh, it can get pretty complicated with with uh, track maintenance and upgrades. Yeah, and and how um, and and what are the windows? And also, yeah. like as you were saying, you know, with, with the uh, freight, you have the uh, freight leads. Then, so you you know, making sure that those are accessible for them and for their customers. So, yeah, it was a um, it was a, a challenging start to jump in, but I, but I will say that one of the, um, if, if you talked to our project manager, I'm sure what he, Joe Riley, what he would say is, it was a team effort and a team spirit from the, from the get-go. It didn't matter whether it was RTA staff, consultant staff, contractor staff, it was just a bunch of good railroaders wanting to make the corridor work. And so everyone was like focused in the same direction on moving forward. Stephen, what uh, what makes this relationship uh, work? I came in about a year and a half ago as executive director. A couple months into my tenure, I got a call from the head of the uh, FRA uh, uh, regional office in Atlanta, saying, uh, "Mr. Abrams, uh, we're coming. I'm coming down to pay you a visit, and I'm bringing 14 of my friends with me." And in fact, the next week, I had a conference room full of FRA and uh, FDOT officials from Washington, from Atlanta, and from Tallahassee, and they said, our, their word, our tracks were deplorable, and Mr. Abrams, I know you've only been here for a couple of months, but you've got to fix it. So in that week uh, interim between when, you know, because I knew what, what was on their mind, that they weren't coming down to give me a housewarming gift, um, that uh, someone mentioned, and I have to remember who it was, who said, you know, you ought to call Joe Yesbeck. And I said, Joe Yesbeck, because I've been an elected official down here in South Florida for 30 years, and, and I do know Joe from, I think, way back in his FDOT days. And then I come to find out he's, as he just told you, the head of, of uh, rail and transit for T.Y. Lynn internationally but happens to live right here in south florida so called joe i you know i i said joe you got to help me now i don't know if it's because he didn't want to see a grown man cry 
or because of you know his relationship with Tryrail over the years. But uh, he he said, I, "I'll call you back in an hour. I think I have the solution for you." And sure enough, called me back. Uh, there happened to be the fellow that Joe mentioned, uh, Joe Riley. So Joe Riley had like uh, a couple of decades, I think, at, at Chicago Metra Track and Signal, right. was chief engineer, and then moved to Washington, D.C., and was in charge of rail worker protection FRA for the entire country, uh, and knew, oh, by the way, all 15 people in that room. And he thought he was going to retire to South Florida. Now, of course, uh, he, most railroaders never really seem to retire or want to retire. And, in, and certainly that's been the case with Joe. And uh, so we were able through, uh, you know, he, he signed on, had signed on as a consultant with T.Y. Lynn. Uh, Joe Yesbeck assigned him to us. And it's been, a, it's been a great success story ever since to the point where the uh, FRA came back. They now come quarterly uh, to our office to say, your tracks are in the best condition they've ever been in. And that was because of, uh, as uh, Joe Yesbeck said, the, the cooperative relationship between our consultants, our contractors, and our internal staff. And, and in fact, uh, uh, Carmen Patriarca, who is that uh, district head of, uh, uh, for the FRA out in Atlanta, and who now is a, you know, a, a, a good uh, colleague of mine that I can rely on, uh, said, it gave me what has been like my best compliment since I've been here, which is you're, you're with us now. So, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, being able to, uh, improve our, our, um, rail corridor. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I'm a very happy, uh, executive director and so pleased that, uh, T.Y. Lynn was able to, uh, solve this problem for us because I probably wouldn't be sitting here as executive director currently to be how's that for the inside story on that that that's that's very good uh joe i guess uh, there's a lot of detail uh in in this uh, collaborative relationship uh but maybe if you could give give a few of the fine points of some of the practices you instituted some of the, some of the things you you did i think it would be very very helpful to our uh, our audience especially the uh, engineering and operating people out there who are listening in so, uh, you know, I think if I were going to say maybe two or three um, elements, number one was hitting the ground running, was, was going out, getting a, inspecting the corridor, getting a listing of all the inspection reports, and truly understanding what, what was the condition, what needed to be addressed, and prioritizing them so that the, the class, it's a class four corridor, so that it could it would maintain its class four status and allow the operations of all three tri-rail amtrak and csx to continue as planned so so first was just everyone as a team getting a true understanding of what the condition was and prioritizing the projects the other thing was implementing a daily call so there's a daily call at 7 30 every morning reviewing the work plan for the day um, reviewing and prioritizing issues coming up, a lessons learned so that things that may have not worked out in the last day or two days, you can plan ahead and make adjustments. So, and that 7:30 call is 30 minutes, no matter what. Like you don't let don't let the calls just extend 
as long as you know they want to make sure people are concise and and then get out to work and implement the plan um, I would say the, the the last item was to sort of is is keeping your keeping your eyes on the horizon you know what's the goal there were a, a substantial number of slow orders on the corridor when this um, first began and uh, it's now down to six I think it's going to be at zero by the end of the summer and so understanding that what was really the problem that needed to be solved here not only you know getting the uh, the condition of the corridor up to date and all of the technical parts of it but getting the slow orders off the corridor so that all of the operations could occur as planned and uh, I'd say those were really the three sort of steering elements that um, that helped get this program in, um, implemented and successful were you able to accelerate some of the work, uh, being that there's, there, are few, there were fewer trains in, in operation? You know, that took some cooperation. I mean, SFRTA with their, con with their contract maintenance uh, firm, Keolas, it took some cooperation to take some of the maintenance elements that were staged maybe in later quarters or in later years and accelerate them. Along with working, you know, the, the underlying rail corridors owned by the Florida Department of Transportation. So it's, it's a multi, it takes a multiple agency sort of cooperation to maybe take components that were planned for a later date and accelerate them, having both the staff and, and the uh, material and equipment, as well as the funding to, uh, to do that. And, and that's that part of what was, you know, part of the success of the plan was being able to identify some elements that could be accelerated. So. Bill, so it was a big relief, yes, uh, as uh, Joe mentioned, to go from the uh, 38 slow orders. You know, we're only a 70-mile track, so there is like a slow order every other mile. Uh, to, he mentioned six. Now, Joe Riley insists, by the way, that three of those should be permanent speed restrictions and not part of the slow orders. And so we'll, we'll say it's down to three, and of course, FRA is always, um, you know, out inspecting and FDOT as they well should. So there's always going to be uh, some uh, some part of the trip that's in need of repair. Geolis is our commuter uh, connector con uh, contractor and they do a fine job for us. Transdev Rail, though, uh, are out there. Um, we're uh, repairing our, our tracks, maintaining them. Um, but it also, of course, benefits our riders in the end. We had on-time performance issues that now have been resolved. And in fact, we're at, uh, at least before the, the pandemic, we're at record levels for our on-time performance as well. So, it, you know, ultimately, what do we do this for? We do this for uh, the safety of all of our users and then also the convenience of our riders to get where they need to go on a timely basis. We have four major contractors, uh, Herzog, which is uh, in charge of our uh, operations. Operations, you know, right, okay. Transdev Rail, uh, which is uh, does our maintenance of way. Keolis does our, we have a shuttle bus system uh, for the last mile, and then G4S provides our uh, security. It's always good when the agency can can sing the praises of a of a fabulous relationship. And I think, um, given the situation that Stephen walked into, I, I, you know, this is this is a really really good news story. And don't we all need one of those right now? 
We certainly do. That is a good segue into uh, the next topic I'd like to discuss with you, Stephen, and that is a rather touchy situation with uh, uh, Brightline and access into Miami, and it's, um, it's pretty, pretty complicated. Uh, why don't you explain exactly what's going on? SFRTA and, and Brightline have always, and still do, have a, a good uh, working relationship, a very constructive relationship, mostly because uh, we view ourselves as different uh, markets. Uh, and of course, uh, just for the background for your listeners, there are essentially are two parallel uh, railroad tracks down here in South Florida. Uh, one on the east is the FEC corridor, the old Henry Flagler line, uh, that is owned uh, by FEC, and then our corridor, which is uh, some miles to the to the west, uh, the old seaboard line um, that, as Joe Yesbeck mentioned, is owned by the state of Florida, and uh, we operate commuter rail service. So, as we all know, uh, Brightline. Uh, initiated inner city uh, passenger service in South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, with their ultimate destination being in Orlando, uh, which was a great service. Unfortunately, they've had to suspend it during the uh, pandemic, uh, but uh, was a a great service that uh, really relied uh, on for their passenger base, tourists uh, and and business uh, executives and was, you know, first, just first class, top of the line, and you paid, uh, you know, the ticket price accordingly. Our service, though, uh, is your everyday commuter rail service. Uh, You know, frequent stops, uh, very affordable prices, uh, and we really take, you know, the average uh, worker and student to uh, his or her destination every day. Tri-Rail has always had an interest in providing, uh, extending that service to the Eastern tracks. The Eastern tracks go through all of the major South Florida downtowns, whereas ours are further west, but although they do then capture um, riders from the western parts of the three counties that we serve. So they really can complement each other. And so over the years, we've always plans to uh, hopefully one day provide that commuter rail service, uh, knowing, though, that ultimately FEC owns their tracks. So there would have yeah. to be an arrangement where we would have to have access to their tracks. If I could just interject for, uh, for a moment, uh, the Florida East Coast Railway is actually now owned for uh, for the past two or three years has been owned by Grupo Mexico, which is the same company that operates the Ferromex and Ferrosur operations in in Mexico. So it's a rather interesting uh, structure there with the uh, with, with the FEC. Right, and of course FECI is owned by SoftBank Japan. So yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> originally they were consolidated, but now separate entities. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, in any case. Um, you know, some years we've had plans, to, uh, you know, on paper to do a commuter rail service in Miami-Dade County, to actually do a commuter rail service extending all the way up from Miami to uh, past West Palm Beach. And one uh, collaborative effort that we did accomplish with Brightline, where agreements are currently in place, 
is to provide uh, service from our um, existing track into downtown Miami, Miami Central Station. Our trains would go down to uh, essentially uh, one of our Miami uh, transfer stations and then uh, half the trains would continue south to Miami International Airport, but another set of trains would go four miles east along a uh, connector owned by FEC Railway and then go four miles south into Miami Central Station. Which, so, which is a Bright Line project, correct? Correct. Which is actually called Virgin Central Station. Right. Virgin Central Station. Of course, is synonymous with Virgin since Virgin. Uh, has an investment in Brightline, and and uh, you know they're gradually uh, going to uh, change the branding over, um, so people refer to them as you know Brightline slash Virgin. Right. Um, so while they're uh, uh, while they've suspended service, they've take, taken they've relooked at uh, perhaps providing commuter rail service on their tracks, and uh, starting with. Miami-Dade County, where, uh, and so approached the Miami-Dade County Commission uh, for with a plan to provide five station stops between that Miami Central Station and the Miami-Dade County line at Aventura uh, for service. Now, so that of course was of great interest to us. Uh, Brightline had. Um, informed us that they were negotiating a memorandum of understanding with Miami-Dade County. We were not privy to those negotiations and certainly not a party to them, but they did uh, give us a heads up that they were negotiating a memorandum of understanding that would be taken to uh, the Miami-Dade County Commission, um, which also functions with a um, strong mayor of Miami-Dade County. And so they did that and uh, and we were we we did see that when the MOU became public that uh, there was no role stated for TriRail that uh, Brightline proposed to operate this uh, commuter rail service. That's fine. Again, they own the tracks and um, you know, we did you know, we're not in a opposition to having um, commuter service on those tracks. Uh, but we did point out a couple of things to uh, the mayor and the Miami-Dade County Commission. The first was that, well, we wouldn't object. Certainly, uh, we, it should not come at, the, at any expense of that downtown Miami link, that one seat ride that I described where agreements were in place to extend our current service into downtown Miami. Mm -hmm. Those agreements are in place, the funding has been in place, the platform, in fact, the tri-rail platform is complete in that nation, and uh, there's been a lot of investment on the part of Miami-Dade County and other government agencies in Miami-Dade County, uh, the city of Miami in particular, and uh, to have that and a great expectation on the part of the public to have that service realized, which by the way, the reason it, it the principal reason it hasn't been thus far because these agreements were hammered out years ago 
is because uh, uh, Brightline still uh, is in the process, as we all are, of implementing our PTC. So, you know, that mandate came after the agreement, and of course, all the railroads have to comply with it. Uh, so that's what they've been uh, doing. So we would expect that service to commence when PTC is finally implemented um, and we are invited uh, as a tenant onto their tracks. Um, and then the second thing that frankly we pointed out to Miami-Dade County Commission, because this was an expensive proposition before them, because uh, uh, starting primarily with a $30 million a year access fee that Brookline was requesting and has every right to request an access fee um, to use their tracks. And so our, our point in a letter that I sent to the Miami-Dade County Commission prior to their meeting last week was that you might wanna consider, do an apples apples comparison of what it would cost for TriRail to operate that service versus Brightline because you know we're in the commuter rail business we've actually done studies on that so-called northeast corridor and we believe that we could operate that service less expensively for the taxpayers of Miami-Dade County and so you might want to look into that uh, while you're considering this position okay so a uh, week ago, uh, the, the uh, County Commission had that meeting. Uh, the mayor participates in the meeting. He doesn't vote uh, that, you know, on the, uh, as a, on the commission. But he, uh, really quickly, the, uh, the sentiment seemed to be that, well, this is a very expensive deal. It wasn't necessarily being promoted by uh, Mayor Jimenez. Um, the commissioners uh, understood that. And what then was uh, voted on by the commission was not uh, the particular financial terms of that were contained in the memorandum of understanding, which included that $3 million access fee every year, the uh, $30 to $50 million uh, price tag for uh, operating. Also, and uh, in fairness to uh, Brightline, they were proposing to uh, uh, do the initial uh, purchase and construction of the five stations, um, but then of course uh, additional capital co and operating costs as you um, extended the service. Uh, but instead, uh, directed the uh, mayor to uh, have discussions and negotiations with uh, Brightline and bring something back one way or the other. Uh, within many days, either a, a framework for an agreement or uh, his um, statement that unfortunately, because of cost factors or uh, other things, he could not reach an agreement. So uh, we don't know where that process has gone since the meeting, and I watch it on uh, the computer like everybody else. And uh, yeah, we simply hope that uh, Miami-Dade County takes us up on our suggestions well, our one suggestion that they um, may want to speak with us uh, and examine the costs, but then second, which is more than a suggestion, which has also been now picked up by their, uh, their the advisory committee down there that oversees the transportation tax that 
uh, funds uh, transportation projects down there in Miami-Dade that, that our one-seat ride into downtown Miami must be preserved. That's the long and the short of it, and I'm glad to answer any questions. Well, I'm just curious, uh, what, what do you think, uh, what, what, why would uh, the Brightline people ver- slash Virgin Trains USA, what do you think would prompt them to make a decision, well, we want to try to get into the commuter rail business, because it's, it's totally different from what they were doing. And, and, the, and the clientele, as I understand it, is totally different. You know, the, the, your, your passengers, are your, your customers are from a different economic uh, sector. There's, uh, I, I know that, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people in that, uh, in that area are, I guess, if you want to call them maybe economically disadvantaged, they depend upon transit. Uh, various forms of transit, including uh, tri-rail, whereas the, uh, the the Brightline service was designed for tourists and business travelers, infrequent stops, uh, uh, going all the way to uh, Orlando International Airport, and maybe someday further, maybe into downtown Disney, who knows, but, but uh, two very different, very different uh, types of services. But what, what do you think... Uh, prompted them to uh, to decide to make a go at trying to operate a commuter rail service when you have an established commuter rail operator uh, who can do it at a lower cost uh, in, in the state of Florida? Well, first I would say, Bill, that uh, they do intend to resume their inner city service. And in fact, even though they've suspended operations, they are working diligently on constructing the track from West Palm to Orlando. It would seem that they would need to show some activity on the corridor that they do have investors, as we mentioned, would be desirous of, of uh, seeing a, an effort to um, try to uh, obtain some return on there. Clearly, it's at least two years until they finish the trackage to Orlando. And while they have not, I don't believe they've said explicitly, they have certainly implied that they would not be um, resuming this South Florida inner city service, which they were operating, the Miami, mm-hmm. Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach, anytime soon. And so... Yes, they haven't leave, given a date. I mean, we don't, you right. know, so that no would one, one to believe. And, and of course, as you mentioned, the fundamentals of who rides um, these trains. In our case, you're right. It's the everyday, we have a lot of construction workers, uh, healthcare workers, you know, those essential workers, which is why we never shut down during the pandemic. I mean, those folks still had to get to their jobs. On the other hand, and I've um, ridden right line, um, and I mentioned earlier that that is for a much different customer. That is for your ultimate choice rider. And those folks are, as we know, uh, it's gonna be harder to bring back for, not only for them, for us as well, I was, a, I was a daily tri-rail rider for 10 years, well before I became executive director of SFRTA. And uh, I tell my staff, I have one person focus group for getting a choice rider back on the train. I don't have to ride the train, mm-hmm. but there are many others in South Florida who don't own a car, whose jobs, we're, we are very much a service economy. So there yes. are... You, you, you cannot uh, telework at a construction site. You know, you cannot telework uh, if you work at a hotel. 
or a hospital uh, or you know what have nursing home i know there are a lot of elderly population in in uh in, in florida in general and and there are a lot of service workers that are you know, absolutely necessary to right. help care for those folks so, so my point though is you know their riders have always been a, a uh, you know an upscale rider their ticket prices reflected it um and it's just going to be harder for them to come back until there's a vaccine and people really get the all clear side now your point that and this is also a third point we made in our letter to the miami-dade county commission is that they do have to be attentive and i'm sure they are but this was a reminder to them to be attentive to the the price points of the service i mean if if the commuter service is just to be a bright line light then it's not going to be uh within reach of the everyday workers and students that we know will want to take that service um, and so uh you know they have to be cautious about that in fact previously brightline had um has a, had consummated a deal about I'd say eight or nine months ago the Miami-Dade County Commission to uh, construct a, a station for their inner city service in Aventura, which is right at the near the Miami-Dade uh, Broward County line, uh, and it became uh, it became increasingly clear that if Miami-Dade County taxpayers were going to pay for that station that it really had to be accessible financially to Miami-Dade County residents. And so after that deal was consummated, the Miami-Dade County Commission came back and instructed the mayor to negotiate with Brightline for subsidized fares for Miami-Dade County residents who would use that station. So it, it was on the minds of commissioners previously and we certainly wanted to re remind them again that when you're talking about commuter rail service, especially down here in South Florida, you are really talking about providing a lifeline service for so many of the residents who uh, just don't own or possibly maintain an automobile and do not have the teleworking opportunities that other uh, riders do. And and there's a uh, of course there's a huge uh, difference in fares. Uh, what 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 is a typical uh, endpoint to endpoint uh, monthly pass cost on on TriRail? Well, we've done the calculation. Well, right now it costs nothing because we've suspended fares. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> but we we've done the calculations. I mean, it's just uh, you know if you get a monthly pass, um, you're talking about like a. a you can and go oh, every day. You can. You're probably riding for about a buck, you know, a dollar. Um, but you know, for a one-way fare from West Palm Beach to Miami, and we don't really have passengers that ride on the whole length of the yes. uh, corridor. But sure. that was ultimately like ten dollars and seventy cents, uh, just a you know, without any of the discounts. Mm -hmm. uh, this is in contrast to. Brightline, which again, I mean, admittedly, they're not trying, they were not in the business of competing uh, with us for our commuter rider, you know, was in the, um, if I recall correctly, I don't know, the $30, $40 range. You know, we just have to make sure that, but, you know, the difference though now is that Brightline has approached the government 
in this case, Miami-Dade County, but also uh, potentially Broward County and Palm Beach County to provide funding to them for access to their tracks. At that point, then the public has obviously a huge interest in ensuring that the service is um, beneficial for taxpayers if they're going to be spending the money. Well, this will be a very interesting uh, te- uh, test case. We'll have to uh, uh, we'll have to keep following this and see how it uh, see how it plays out. Nothing is easy in the world of passenger rail. <laughs> well, nothing's easy, Bill. But you know, I do feel generally uh, confident that passenger rail, commuter rail, you know, that we're going to come back, that especially down here in Florida. Well, first that we're we play a critical role in coming out of this. Uh, pandemic, uh, especially the economic effects of it, well, not only the economic effects, but as I mentioned, we transport essential health care workers each and every day. But on the economic side, that commuter rail is, the, is so adept at um, being able to open up job opportunities for people throughout a, an entire region. And then secondly, we are working on uh, putting some projects out uh, on the corridor while we uh, have reduced service to boost the economy. But also in the longer run, I mean, South Florida in particular, you know, we've had hurricanes and all kinds of natural disasters. People swear they're they're leaving and never coming back. And not only do they not leave, but we we keep uh, receiving an influx of folks. Uh, And... Uh, so we always have overdevelopment and traffic congestion. You know, the elements for public transit and in particular commuter rail come back. Um, as I mentioned, we're not going to less teleworking down here maybe than other regions of the country. But also, for better or for worse, for worse, you know, we're still uh, ground zero for the effects of climate change. And that also points to having a robust uh, transit and rail system in the future, especially rail, as opposed to even other forms of transit, we sign at our, our uh, flagship station uh, that's posted that says 400 cars equals eight buses equals one train. And of course, you know, that train should be tri- a tri-rail train. Yes, uh, and those, those, uh, those numbers, those formulas are, are accurate. You know, if I, if I recall correctly, the original intent behind tri-rail was uh, was because the uh, Interstate 95 was being expanded, and and the the tri rail service was put in to relieve the relieve the congestion on the highway, and it was supposed to be a temporary measure. Well, th- what thirty years later, you were very very close to uh, to reaching your record. You know, very close to getting to a hundred million people riding this system, and uh, as we said earlier, you will get there. So. Uh, I think that's a pretty good track record for uh, for what was supposed to be a temporary uh, uh, automobile uh, congestion relief <laughs> solution. You're absolutely right. Here we are um, all these decades later, and not only um, was it a, supposed to be a temporary solution, but it's just got increasingly more popular, and I think uh, people recognize the importance of it as South Florida has grown over those 30 years. Well, I guess I'll I'll conclude on on the note. I like to paraphrase the uh, the line from Field of Dreams: "Build it, and they will come." Uh, for for passenger rail, for commuter rail, 
uh, and and I know this is this is a theme of the Commuter Rail Coalition. Build it, and they will ride, and they'll keep riding. That's been our experience, and you know that's certainly the message that the Commuter Rail Coalition uh, takes to uh, Capitol Hill and the federal agencies. You know, this country needs to head in terms of the quality of life that our citizens want to have, whether it's something as basic as having more accessibility to jobs or something as uh, fundamental as our survivability during the period of climate change that we find ourselves in, that uh, commuter rail really is a solution. Well, thank you, uh, Stephen Abrams, for joining us. Give a shout out to uh, Joe uh, Yesbeck for joining us and talking about the, uh, the Maintenance Away program. And uh, Kellyanne, thank you for, for bringing these folks together. This series will continue. Good health and have a safe day. Mm-hmm.